hope that you had a, a great week in the Lord this past week, and we're thankful that you decided to come and join us here in worship. If you're a guest today, I just want to say thanks so much for coming and uh, checking us out here at the, the movie theater, and we appreciate your time with us. The one thing we ask you to do is if you look at your worship program that hopefully you got from an usher on your way in, it's a little card, a little uh, cardstock paper that has some information about the church. At the bottom of it, there's a thing we call a connection card. If you would just fill that out and then take it out to the orange tent on your way out today. And we got a gift for you. And some of you may be holding a popcorn box and thinking to yourself, I already got the gift, sucker. We don't have to fill out the card. Uh, we got more gifts for you. So please fill that out. And uh, we'd love to bless you and uh, be a blessing to some other people as well. And you can read about that in your worship program. But uh, for those of you who were here last week, you may remember at about this point in the message, I jumped up, or in the service, I jumped up to start the message. And before you even got to sit down uh, from worship, and I just asked you if what we had just done was pleasing to God. And some of you were kind of taken back, like, what's he talking about? Like, I enjoyed that, and it sounded good, and the worship team sounded good. And some of you maybe felt like I was before the throne of God, and they did a great job. And I'm sure you, you felt that way. But the reason why I was asking that question is because I was trying to get to our hearts, which is hard to do. But in our passage that we looked at last week, we saw that Jesus calls some people hypocrites, and then the very next thing he talks about is not their duplicity. Not that they say one thing and do something else, which is oftentimes what we think about for hypocrisy. And that is a form of hypocrisy. But he was talking about something more wicked, more subtle. He says, you praise me with your lips, the most outward surface level thing he could talk about, but in your hearts, the most inward thing, you're far from me. And he was getting at their hearts. And so we were trying to get at our hearts. And we talked about last week how hypocrisy hides the heart. And we were trying to take a look at our own hearts. And it's ironic as I looked back at the week how I didn't think of this in preparation for the message last week, that last week I was actually having trouble with my, own, my eyes and being able to see and just the comfort of seeing the whole week that week. And I didn't even think about that when I was preaching the message. My own hypocrisy. I can't even see stuff in my own life. And so I don't know if you remember, but last Monday was the 4th of July. And so a lot of you probably cooked out or relaxed, had the day off at work, spent time with family, didn't, didn't work, something like that. Not our family. My wife and I, we decided we were going to paint the living room ceiling at our house. It was a dark color. She wanted it to be a light color. So we decided we were going to paint. We've been doing this. We've been married now for 16 years. So it's kind of like dancing. Like she just knows what part she does and I know what part I do. And so she takes and she does the detail and I do the rolling. I like to see mass change. And so I start rolling. And uh, when you're doing a ceiling, that's problematic though because you're rolling and you're looking up at the thing. And I kept getting little specks of paint in my eye, but it didn't really hurt. It didn't even feel like an eyelash, like I didn't even stop painting. And so the next day when I woke up and my eyes were driving me nuts, I didn't even think it's from the paint yesterday. So I just, why are my eyes bothering me? Did I not get enough sleep? And so I'm rubbing my eyes. Tuesday, I go into the office, leading staff meeting. I remember telling the staff, hey, I'm sorry if I rub my eyes a lot. They're just bothering me today. Went into my office, turned the lights off. I would read with the lights off, do email with the lights off, do as much stuff as I could with the lights off. When I got home, I just wanted to lay in my room with the lights off. Like it was just hurting me to even see. I waited four days until Friday to call the doctor, which just means I'm an idiot. And so I waited until Friday. I call the doctor. I can't get in to see my eye doctor. She's got a, the only opening she had was right when I had an appointment. I was going with a guy from our church, an appointment for our church. And, uh, but I have a great eye doctor. And so she text messaged me and said, take a selfie of your eyeball, which that's hard to do, by the way. And I can't see. Why is my eye not moving right? I don't know if you ever tried that. So I asked my friend, he's a leader in our church, Vern Kivett, for those of you who know Vern, to take a picture of my eye. And we're still friends afterwards. And so that's a, that's a good friendship. He took a picture of my eye, I texted over to my eye doctor, she writes me right back and she says, well, you've got a chemical inflammation. She calls in some eye drops. Four hours later, my eyes feel totally fine. I can see no problem. I waited four days, could have been fixed in four hours. What was I thinking? And I think about that in light of what we've been talking about last week, and then this week is the sequel to last week's message. 
If there were just some magical eye drops we could give everybody so then they could look at their hearts, wouldn't that be awesome? It's so difficult to see even our own hearts. Like we'll talk about, you know, man looks at outward appearance and God looks at the heart and we, we look at that and we think, well, yeah, so you shouldn't judge me because you don't know my heart, but we don't even know our own hearts. How do we look at our hearts? How do we see our hearts? But here's how we do it. God reveals to us through his revelation our hearts, his word. And not just the last book in the Bible that's called Revelation, the whole thing is his revelation. It reveals his character, reveals his person, reveals his son, Jesus Christ, reveals his commands, reveals his promises, and it also reveals our own hearts. We hear it talking about the word is like a sword. It pierces our hearts. In James, in James chapter 1, there's a passage of scripture that's talking about doing the word. It says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but you've got to go be a doer of the word. And it says, anybody who hears the word and doesn't do what it says is like the person who looks in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. So the word's like a mirror. And what we want to see when we look into the Word is our hearts. And today being a, a sequel to last week, it's actually the exact, it's a contrast, the exact opposite. What Mark's putting on display this week is the opposite of last week. Last week he showed us a heart of hypocrisy. This week he's going to show us a pure heart. Last week I asked you the question, are you a hypocrite? And I think most of us at least sense some hypocrisy in our own lives. This week I want to ask you, are you pure in heart? Which is a really important question. Are you one of those that are the pure in heart? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, and they only, by the way, will see God. It's only, we were talking last week about our worship, it's only the pure in heart whose worship is acceptable to God. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 say it like this, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can be in his presence? Who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4 gives the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And so today I ask you the question. Are you one of the pure in heart? If so, you'll get to see God. And today what we're going to look at is what Mark puts on display is somebody who's pure in heart. It's in Mark chapter 7. We left off last week in verse 23. We cover verses 1 through 23. This week we're going to look at verses 24 through 30. And if you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Those verses will be on the screen, but oftentimes it's great just to be able to see the context and what's happening there. And what's happening that we talked about last week, just in case you're, you weren't here, is that Jesus was confronting hypocrites. But these people that he's confronting would have been the last people anyone would have thought was a hypocrite. In fact, outwardly, they were the most righteous people. They cleaned the outside of the cup. The problem was the inside was filthy, full of self-indulgence and greed. But on the outside, they had special days they observed so that they didn't work on those days. And everybody thought that was because they were so committed to God and they thought that was because they were so committed to God. They had food that they wouldn't eat. They'd never eat crispy pig head. They'd never eat certain types of food. They had a lot of rituals that they would perform, like washing their hands to show their purity, to show how pure they are. Everything about them on the outside screamed purity, but what Jesus gets to is their hearts, and he says that hypocrisy hides the heart, and hypocrites are blind to their own spiritual condition. Not only that, but the hypocrites focus merely on the externals. It's not that it's bad to look at the externals sometimes, but merely on the externals, you'll never see your heart. And then he goes on in verses 8 through 13 last week, and he shows that hypocrites even go so far as coming up with reasons to disobey God and thinking those reasons are from God. Saying that they're biblical, and it sounds crazy, but when you see it happening, we see how we do it in our own lives. And then Jesus goes on and he, he says that all that wickedness actually comes from the heart. And he didn't talk about a pure heart at all last week. It was pretty depressing the way that he actually said things. And I'll just pick up where he left off in verse uh, 21 through 23, I'll read to you. And then verse 24 is where we're starting today. In verse 21 he says, it's for from within. 
Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. In verse 27, he says, greed, malice, deceit. He's just got this long list. Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Verse 23, all these evil come from inside and make a man unclean. And then today's passage, verse 24. Now we're going to get a contrast, and we're going to get a picture of a pure heart. It says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Incognito, he's trying to hide out here. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as, a, as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syria and Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus gives this parable, verse 27, it's the heart of our passage. First, let the little children, or let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it's not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to their dogs. Verse 28, yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This passage is a total contrast from last week's passage. Remember last week was all about clean versus unclean. And if you have a copy of the Bible, you can just even scan back and see how many times the word unclean is mentioned. It was mentioned in verse 2 last week. It was mentioned in verse 5 last week. Unclean, unclean. And that was from the people that were confronting Jesus. And then Jesus starts talking about it, and he talks about it coming from the heart. In verse 15, twice he says, unclean, unclean. Verse 18, unclean. Verse 20, unclean. Verse 23, we just read, unclean. And then how does it tie into this week? Well, when this woman comes to Jesus, she falls on her face and she cries out to Jesus, heal my daughter from, and the NIV says this evil spirit. That word evil is literally translated unclean. In fact, some of your translations, if you have the English Standard Version, I think, and the New American Standard Version, they translate it unclean, this unclean spirit. Will you cleanse my daughter? And what we see from this woman is that she's someone who's clean, but everything on the outside of her screams unclean especially to a, a Jewish reader. Everything about this woman is a contrast of the men that we saw last week, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Because this woman, she's from Tyre. It's outside of Israel, by the way. It's the only place in the Bible that we know of Jesus leaving the Holy Land, leaving Israel. It's not a coincidence that comes right after confronting these men who thought they were pure, that he would leave the Holy Land and come in contact with this woman. They were known idol worshipers. And in contrast to these guys that do everything they can, special foods, special days, special rituals, to show that they are clean, to show that they're pure. She's a woman, they're men. They're Jewish, she's a Gentile. Did you see it's emphasized in the passage? Not just that she's a Gentile, not just that she's a Greek, but she's born in Syrian Phoenicia. She's a Syrian Phoenician woman, Gentile, not Jewish. Everything that's described about this woman cries out, she's unclean externally. And so then you've got to look internal on this woman. And what we see when we start looking at the signs of her heart is that she's a woman with a pure heart. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, the only way you can have a pure heart is by faith. In Matthew chapter 15, she's one of only a couple people in the whole New Testament that Jesus praises her faith. And here's what we see about a pure heart. The pure heart, as we look at our own, and we look at the scriptures like it's, like what James talks about, a mirror, and we want to see ourselves, what we see when we see this woman is a pure heart, and so we've got to ask ourselves, is our heart like this? Is that she's got a humble faith, because those who are pure in heart exercise a humble faith. 
Those who are pure in heart exercise a humble faith. And just think about the opposite of what a humble faith would be, an arrogant faith or a proud faith. There's no such thing as that in the New Testament, by the way. In fact, if you look at arrogance or pride, it's one of the sins that Jesus just listed that comes from a wicked heart. God hates pride. The idea of a proud heart, that's like an oxymoron. That'd be like saying jumbo shrimp. Oh, wait, that's real. But see, many of us are very arrogant, very proud, very conceited, very self-centered, and we claim to be people of faith. That's an oxymoron. That doesn't even exist in the New Testament. In fact, in the Bible, we see that God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 5, God hates pride, and it won't go unpunished. It says, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's multiple times in the New Testament. And then when you look at this woman in this passage, everything about her screams her humility. And you think about the guys from last week. When they came to Jesus, they came to confront Jesus. They came to sit in judgment on Jesus. They were going to ask Jesus about his teaching, about his practices, about his life. When this woman comes before Jesus, for her very posture screams her humility. She falls on her face. Look at it, if you have your Bible still. It says, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. Her posture says that she's humble. In fact, the posture she has here is a reminder of the posture that we saw in Mark chapter 5. Remember there was a guy, his name was Jairus. Jairus was a synagogue ruler. He was the ruler. He had the reputation. He was the teacher. He's the one with all the authority. He's the one with the position. But when he comes before Jesus, he falls on his face before Jesus. Just as we should all fall on our face when we recognize who Jesus Christ actually is. It's the posture we see. When you see people with, with a faith that God responds to, with a faith where prayers are being answered, with a faith, the kind of person that God uses, the kind of, when you talk about God opposing the problem, giving grace to the humble, think about people that come before God. Think about Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 and what he does. He comes and he's in God, he realizes he's in God's presence. He doesn't later write in his journal, I'm pretty awesome. God must really love me. This is amazing that I got to see him unlike anyone else got to see him, which is what many of us would do. He says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and then God's gracious and uses him to preach his word as a man with unclean lips. You see later, there's a story that's similar to this one. In Matthew chapter 8, there's a guy who, he wants someone to be healed, and he says, Lord, you don't even have to come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. And Jesus is amazed at his faith. Remember last week we talked about the two guys in the Luke chapter 18 that go to pray. The Pharisee who does all the outward stuff and looks so pure and then the tax collector who says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And one man went away justified. And it was the one who was humble. You look at Peter in the boat and I think about if I was Peter in that boat, what would I have done? I'm so sinful. What would I have done? And there's this miraculous catch in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus said, you know, throw your nets over there. And so Peter's the one who has the nets. Peter's the one who has the boats. But Jesus is the one who can find all the fish. And he throws his nets over there. And Peter doesn't say to Jesus, we got a good thing going here, Jesus. You find the fish. I got the equipment. We should have a partnership. We'll write an LLC. I know some lawyers. We'll get this thing down. We're going to make some cash, Jesus. We've got to fund your ministry, right? You know what Peter says? Get away from me. I am a sinful man. He humbles himself because he realizes he's in the presence of holiness. Here this woman, her very posture shows her humility. She's got a humble faith. But it's not just her posture. You go to the heart of this passage, and probably the most confusing part, and you see this woman actually understands this parable that Jesus says. She's the only person we've seen in the book of Mark so far that Jesus shares a parable, and she understands it on the first try. In fact, contrast the disciples last week 
who he didn't even say a parable. He just says something that's true. Hey, wickedness comes from your heart. Can you explain that parable to us? It wasn't even a parable. And he says, are you so dull? Like, how do you guys not get this? This woman gets it, and this is far more confusing. Verse 27, we want to see her humility. Look what happens in verse 27 and 28. Verse 27, Jesus is speaking. He gives this parable to this woman. She's been begging him repeatedly. We find out in Mark chapter 15, he wasn't even listening to her at first. She just kept asking, kept begging. Eventually, the disciples said, hey, tell her to go away. Like, she's getting annoying. And then Jesus turns and he says, first let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs implied to this woman, you and your daughter are the dogs. Now, the teaching here was simply the priority of Jesus' ministry, that he came first to the Jew, then to everybody else. That's all of us who aren't Jewish here. Myself, probably the majority of the rest of you, not Jewish. She doesn't say back to him, I remember verse 28, she doesn't say back to him, hey, that's not right. Somebody shouldn't have an advantage over me. In fact, we see this other places in the New Testament. In fact, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Jesus says this, or uh, Paul says this, talking about, he says, hey, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. First to the Jew, oftentimes we don't think about that last part, then to the Gentile. And we just all think, well, I'm, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I, I, I got these rights and things are owed to me. And we don't like to say that, but with our culture and the false gospels, like the prosperity gospel that we hear, all these things feeding in, and we start thinking, well, I'm pretty, I'm, God should, like God owes me something, God should do something for me. I mean, I prayed the right way and I believe the right thing and I thought the right thoughts. That's not this woman's attitude. Here she's called, implied by what Jesus says, a dog. And that'd be highly offensive to most people. You see it throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's, a, it's a statement, a derogatory type statement. And you see it in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus uses it elsewhere, not of a specific person, but he's speaking in Matthew chapter 7. He says, hey, don't put what's holy before dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Those are not positive statements. Paul says it in Philippians chapter 3 when he's talking about people that, that think they're justified before God because they're good people and because of their outward stuff. And, G- and Paul says, hey, those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, don't believe, don't follow them. It's by grace. Here Paul says, or Jesus says this, and most people would be offended. Because most people, when they thought of dogs, and maybe you've heard this in sermons before, that uh, when uh, you, know, you hear dogs in the New Testament, they're not talking about your sweet Fido or Ralph, Ralphie or whatever you name it. I took my daughter to the dog store the other day, the pet store, and uh, she just loves animals, and she started naming all these dogs. That's Eddie. We're going to call him Eddie. That's Lu- we didn't take any of them home. We weren't buying any. It was awesome. It was like free, and she still enjoyed it. Lucy, that's Lucy. That's Eddie, and that's, you know, Waldo. And she's naming, she's like, that's Coco. And, like, some of them are, like, chocolate and candy cane, and then it's, like, Bob. You know, different names. And so most people, when they think of dogs in the New Testament, they think of, oh, it's not that. It's not that kind of dog. It's not a pet dog. It's a scavenger. Like the dogs in the New Testament would be dogs that would eat garbage and corpse, and car- you know, carcasses, and just everything unclean. And that's usually what's being talked about. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. And the word that Jesus uses here is actually a unique word. And if you have the New King James Version of the Bible, it actually says little dog. It's talking about like puppies. Like it is talking about Waldo or Bob or Candy Cane or whatever you named your dog. It's talking about your dog, which is still derogatory because he's saying to the children eat first. That's the Jews. You don't feed the dogs. He's speaking to a mother. She knows table etiquette. You don't feed the dog before you feed your kids. And look at what she says back. Very first two words in verse 28. Yes, Lord. (laughs) Talk about humility. 
She's not saying, I'm going to fight for my, I've got to get, I can't believe someone has an advantage over me. Yes, because of who you are, Lord. It's the only time in the book of Mark that Jesus is called Lord by someone else. He refers to himself that way. It's the only time in Mark that someone else calls Jesus Lord. And some people will say, well, it's like saying yes, sir. No, it's not like yes, saying, saying yes, sir. The parallel account, Matthew chapter 15, you go check that out again. When she's speaking, she says, Lord, son of David, the double messianic titles. She gets who he is. The Pharisees, who are the teachers of the law, that know all the Bible, don't have a clue. His disciples, are you so dull? This woman gets it. She understands who Jesus is. She doesn't argue. And what she says next shows she understands. She understands the parable. Because what she says next is, but even the kids get some crumbs. Or even the the kids, they're going to drop crumbs. Like when dad breaks the bread, there's crumbs that fall. You don't have to stop ministering to the Jews. You don't have to stop teaching your disciples. I'm going to, all I want is a crumb. It's our humility. It's like, it's like at our house. I don't know if you do have a little dog or not, but we've got a little 10 pound dog. We call him Noble. It's his name. And uh, Noble loves everybody in our family except one person. (laughs) Now, my youngest daughter, now I, my daughters will listen to the sermons on CD. They'll get a CD after the service and they'll play it like as they're going, I don't know why it puts them to sleep. I'm not I'm sure if I'm offended by that or not, but they listen to it before they go to bed at night. And uh, I've told my wife before, I'm like passively discipling our kids while they're trying to sleep and they're just listening to these CDs. So Gracie, if you ever hear this, don't be offended by this, but our youngest daughter, Gracie, our dog does not love Gracie because Gracie's like Elmira. Elmira is the, do you remember Elmira? She, I love you, I'm going to squeeze you for my very own. It's like she squeezes Noble so tight, I think his eyeballs are going to pop out sometimes. She's pulling on his ears and poking his face, and she, Noble wags his tail, gets excited, everybody walks in, but when Gracie comes into a room, he runs and hides underneath the stool, hides underneath the table. One time I heard Gracie say to my wife, when I grow up, I want to be like you, Mom, because Noble loves you. <laughs> and we were like, he'd love you too if you'd just chill out a little bit, like lay off and but let me tell you what happens at mealtime. When mealtime comes, that dog is not a fool. He knows that my best shot at getting some food is to go to the youngest kid. Because she's going to be wearing some of that food after the meal, and I've got access to it. Like, I can get to her. But she's going to drop the most crumbs. And so we don't feed the dog from the table, but he gets food, especially if he hangs around the kids. And the mom knows this. And she's saying, hey, you don't have to stop ministering to the juice. They're your children, and I'll accept the role of a dog, but even the dogs get a crumb. I just want a crumb, Jesus. That's humility. She accepts her. This woman knows that she's unacceptable, and she accepts the fact that she's unacceptable, and she humbles herself before Jesus. It's not just that she's on her knees physically. Her heart is bowed before Jesus Christ because she realizes who she is and who he is, and most of us, our problem is that is not true for us. And we, we, we love God and we believe God's sovereign and we believe he's stronger and we believe he's powerful and believe he's true. And we've, we like those passages in Isaiah 6 and Luke 5 and all those other passages. You talk about Revelation chapter 1. John does the same thing, falls down as though dead. And all those passages are to humble our hearts. But many of us, and it's some of us because of the culture we live in, it's politically correct culture where people are offended by everything. Somebody's going to be offended by somebody being offended and you're offended that someone didn't get hurt because they were offended in what they said. And you know what? Who cares? And then, then you add to that the teachings that are going on in many of the churches, like, like if you just got under the spout where the blessings came out, you just had the faith, if you just believed about your bank account enough, then you have money in your bank account. Where is that in the Bible? That's right. Thank you. Come on up here. You can help out. And so you factor all those things together, 
and we can say that we don't believe it, but then you want to know whether or not you feel entitled? Let me ask you this question. If God stopped blessing you today, would his blessings have been enough? If he didn't bless you one more time with what we consider blessing, now we know hardship is blessing, we know difficult, I'm not talking about that right now, but the way we think about blessing, like all the good stuff, all the things we want to have, if he didn't do another one of those things, as of this moment, it stopped, and everything that happened in your life from this time until you die was what we consider bad stuff, would his blessings have been enough? Think about that. Don't just answer. Think about that. And many of us think we're owed something. Like we're owed a good marriage. We're owed a good job. We're owed health. We're owed the cancer to be taken away. We're owed some, you pick it, we're owed kids. We're owed some, and if you don't think that we believe that we're owed that, then what happens when that stuff's taken away? Why me, God? Why not? What? It's like, we, why aren't we more like Job? Naked I came in, naked I go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So let me ask you that question again. If God stopped blessing you today, would it be enough? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope your answer is yes. Because you have salvation. You're, no matter what happens here, you get to be with him. And you didn't deserve that. You weren't owed that, by the way. It wasn't because you were born into a good family. It wasn't because your family always went to church. It wasn't because you found Jesus. You deserved hell. You deserved wrath. Every one of us is an enemy of God. We all rebel against him. And what he did, the only reason he's even here on earth for this story to take place, for us to look back on, is because he came to reconcile you to his father. He was tempted in every way as we are, but he never sinned. He was righteous. And what happens on the cross is what theologians call the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Let me tell you what that is. He died in your place. You should have been on the cross. It's your sins that are being paid for at the cross because you went your own way, because you think you know better, because you want to make up religion in your own mind that you think is right rather than submitting to God. That's called sin. For all have sinned. There are none righteous, not even one. And he died for you. You didn't deserve it. And the only way you ever come to grips with that is when you humble yourself like this woman and realize, oh, he's Lord and I'm not. I shouldn't be calling the shots. I don't have this thing figured out. I need him. Every one of you that's a believer in Jesus Christ have had at least a moment of that in your life. Well, then to walk with him is to continue to live in humility and dependence upon him. And what happens is oftentimes, and entitlement creeps in, pride creeps in. The reason why people are offended, we don't get mad when the Pharisees are called brood of vipers, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, because we think they deserve it. It bothers us when this needy, helpless woman comes here and Jesus calls her a dog. And if we were her, we, most of us probably wouldn't respond the same way as she does. We'd be upset because it pricks our pride. We think we deserve something. We think we're owed something. And you know, I think, I believe, and I don't have a verse that says this exact statement, just so you know, this is my opinion. I believe that one of the greatest sins that Jesus str struggled with, tempted with, he's tempted in every way as we are, didn't sin, was pride. You look at the temptation when he's being tempted by Satan. That's not the only time he was tempted. It was through his whole life. But in that, that Matthew chapter 4, you read about it, where he's being tempted by Satan. And what is the first thing he says? If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Of course he was, of course he was hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days. Of course it was the actual act that was tempting. But how about that first statement? If you are the son of God. I am the son. What do you mean? I am the son of God. I can do that. How about when he's with Peter? Peter's just said he's the Christ. He's just spoken words from God. And then he says, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to be turned over and the elders and the chief priests and they're going to kill me on a cross. And then Peter says, no, 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 not you. 
You don't think there was a... Yeah, I, mean, I, I am doing everything you want me to do, God. I mean, it shouldn't be me. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because there's a temptation happening there. You're the tool of Satan at this moment, Peter. But then you look at his life, and it was a picture of humility. In Mark chapter 10, we're going to get the classic verse in Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. If anybody should have been served, it was Jesus, but to serve. And the ultimate way he serves is through the cross. We see him do it in other ways. We see him wash his disciples' feet, even Judas. We see him put other people ahead of himself. It's the very fact that he's here on earth is because of that. And it says in Philippians chapter 2 that our attitude as followers of him, Paul's writing to a church of people just like us, says your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, to be grasped, but considered himself nothing. He's God. He considered himself nothing. Became obedient. Oh, we see humility through obedience. Obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. He became cursed. That's what that would communicate to those readers. To die on a cross was a curse. He became cursed, even though he was righteous, so that we could have his righteousness. The only way we become pure in heart is to have humble faith, because it's humble faith that comes to the cross. And see, it's pride that stopped people from trusting Jesus as Savior. There's two big reasons that I hear as a pastor for people not trusting Christ. One is, my sin is too bad. One is, I'm going to trust in myself. Various versions of that. But if you think that you're too bad to be saved, you think you're bigger than Jesus. That's pride. It sounds like humility, and it is a false humility. Oftentimes you hear people saying how bad they are, I'm just a worm, and all this bad stuff. That's not real humility. Real humility is you have an accurate picture of who you are before God, and it changes the way that you live as a result. That's called worship, too. And then there's the people, I just had a guy I shared the gospel with last week, and he said, after I told him what the Bible said, he said, well, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and I'm a good person, and I help people, and so let's go see what really matters is what God thinks when I stand before him. And I'm thinking, it doesn't really matter what I think about what you're, but I just told you what the Bible said. That's, the, that's how he's given us his word. And he said, I'm just going to trust, he's going to trust in himself. That's pride. You're just, we'll just hope it all works out. Well, he's already told us how it works out, and you're trusting is self-reliance, independence, all those things that we're told to strive for in our society feed our pride and fight against our faith because pride is ultimately the enemy of faith. St. Augustine said that it's pride that makes angels into devils. So search our hearts, God, and show us the pride. And Jesus Christ himself was a picture of humility. And then you see the people that are heroes of faith in Scripture were people that were humble people like John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. Then you see people live it out. What about Barnabas? Read the book of Acts and see the life of Barnabas. Here's a guy who was gifted. He was a talented leader. He was a good preacher. And then he comes into contact with a guy named Paul. Paul becomes the greatest missionary of all time. And Barnabas realizes, oh, in order for his ministry to increase, mine must decrease. And so what you see in the book of Acts is it goes from being Barnabas, takes Paul underneath his wing, and it's Barnabas and Paul, and Barnabas and Paul, and Barnabas, and then it changes, and it goes Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And what Barnabas did is he decided, I'm going to put somebody else first. What about you? That's a practical way to work out humility. Who in your life do you need to put ahead of yourself? See, those who are pure in heart have a humble faith. You have a humble faith. But not only do they have a humble faith, they've got a hungry faith. Go back to the text. You see this woman again, another thing we see is the hunger of her faith. Those who are pure in heart have a hungry faith. It's said here that Jesus, when he went into this town, he didn't go there to preach to anybody. He wasn't going there to start a Bible study in some apartment with his disciples and hopefully it'd grow and then turn into a church. It says he went there and he didn't want anyone to know it. So Jesus is going like, 
incognito. He's got the baseball cap on, some sunglasses like Tom Cruise hiding from the paparazzi. He probably shaved his hipster beard off. Sorry to ruin your pictures at home of Jesus. He's trying to hide. And he went into a house. And this woman hears about it. And the way that Mark records it, now you've got to understand, the way that Mark writes his gospel, he writes it like bullet points. Like fact, 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 action, action, action. You continually see the word immediately over 40 times in the book of Mark. You see all this stuff. And he doesn't give all these details. And so I read it and I go, I wonder how this actually played out. Like this woman heard, it says, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, she's never even seen him before. How does she even know who Jesus is? Well, if you go back in Mark, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 8, there were people from Tyre and Sidon that went to see Jesus from outside of Israel to find him, and he was healing and doing, curing people of demon possession, and somebody she knows maybe had been healed. Somebody she knows has been cured. So, but she's at least heard about people who have. And she heard about Jesus. She doesn't know what he looks like. So I imagine she's going through every house in Tyre. Like, how does she, it, it's like here, the way we read it, it almost seems like, well, she heard about him, and there he was, boom, and now they're talking, just the two of them, and there's no crowd. No. What I imagine is, remember why she's looking? Her daughter, she's probably tried and worshipped all the gods of Tyre, which is known for idolatry and sacrificed idols to the, or sacrificed to these idols and they're not working. It hasn't satisfied just like many of us pursue lots of idols and they're not satisfying us. That's why some of us are here today. And she's tried all this stuff. Her daughter is sick. And when you're a parent and your daughter's sick and you know there's an, op there's an option to do something, you're going to do it. And so she's going with reckless abandon. She's hungry to find Jesus. I imagine she's like the SWAT team kicking doors in on houses. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that, the, the last Bourne movies coming out at the end of the month. Not promoting it, if you don't like that kind of thing, but I do. And so the Bourne movies, I don't know if you've ever seen them before, but like Jason Bourne, he'll go running through a house chasing somebody, looking for somebody, kick a door in, run by. Some lady's always doing laundry with the laundry, grabs the sheet, wraps around it, like blocks some bullets or something. That's how I picture this woman. She's coming in, mattresses are getting thrown over, somebody's eating dinner, and it's like, who's that woman that just ran through our house? And this is, she's just looking for Jesus, and how does she even know who Jesus is when she finds him? She's never seen him. Anybody in here named Jesus? Thirteen guys sitting, I can imagine, she kicks the door in, who here is Jesus? And she falls at his feet. And it says, she begged Jesus. Verse 26. After it gives her a list of the outward appearance. She begged Jesus. It's a progressive present. That means she asked, and she asked again, and she asked again, and she asked again, and she asked again, and we find out in Matthew chapter 15, the parallel account of this, that Jesus wasn't even listening to her, wasn't paying attention to her, because the disciples didn't say to him, hey, tell this woman to go away. Like, she's bugging us. She just keeps asking. You're obviously not answering. Tell her to leave. And she asked again, and she asked again, and she asked again. And then Jesus responds to her. She's persistent. She's coming after this. She wants this. And then when Jesus gives an answer that seems almost like he's putting her off, hey, the, the, i got to feed the children. You feed the children before you feed the dogs. Then it's not just her wit, it's her faith. But I just want a crumb. She keeps coming. She's hungry. And when I talk about hunger here, I'm talking about not just like a in-your-stomach kind of hunger. I'm talking about She's got a longing, a desire. Remember last week we talked about Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. She's got a hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ. She wants him. She longs for him. Why? The simple answer is her daughter's sick. I mean, it said it right here in the passage. Her daughter is possessed by an evil spirit. She wants her daughter fixed. She's probably tried everything else. It doesn't work. And that's why she's so bold with Jesus. 
In fact, I like what Tim Keller says. Tim, let me read you a quote from Timothy Keller in his book about Mark, the king and the cross. He's talking about her boldness, and he says, There are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents. He says, parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child's in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. It doesn't matter whether you're normally timid, brazen personality, that's all irrelevant. And you and I know this is true because you've, you've, we've all seen a story of some mom who, you know, their kid was pinned underneath a car and she weighs 110 pounds and she like lifts a Volkswagen, right? Like we all, we've all seen that enough times. It's not like, oh, that doesn't happen. Just Google it. That's, it happens. Because everything on the internet's true. No, there's real stories out there where people have actually done like superhuman. It's like stuff happens and parents are like unstoppable. And so you could just say that. But then my question is this, why Jesus? Why is she going after Jesus? And let me tell you the answer. It's because she knows that he's the only one that can actually meet this need. I don't ask you the question, what do you hunger and thirst for? Because it's nice to say in church, like you hunger and thirst for righteousness, but what are your longings? What are your desires? What is it you're going after in your life? Do you hunger and thirst for money? Hunger and thirst for power? Hunger and thirst for sex? Hunger and thirst for a marriage? Hunger and thirst to have kids? Hunger and thirst to have a job? Hunger and thirst to have... What? What is it? The other people's praise in your life? Hunger and thirst that the dad would just say you did a good job? Hunger and thirst for to matter? Like, what is it that you hunger and thirst for? And, and you think about all those things, and how do they compare to Jesus? Because I, I, I'm willing to bet this woman would lay all that stuff down, and she's turning from her idols to have Jesus. What about you? Do you really believe that Jesus is better than all those things? Is Jesus better than, and then you just fill in the, what is it that you go after? Is Jesus actually more satisfied? So it says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied, will be filled. Is that better than those who hunger and thirst for lust? Is Jesus more satisfying than lust? Is it truly better to give than receive? Is Jesus better than your career? Is Jesus better than that? What do you think you're going to get out of life? Is Jesus really better than that? And the reality is that many of us can't even answer that question because we don't know Jesus well enough. So you're attracted to something because of what you know about it, what you think it's going to give. Many of us, we just know, oh gee, he died for my sins and I got that and covered that and he's kind of on call if I need him. Speed dial. But we don't really know him. This makes me think about, our, I was having a conversation with my daughter last week after Sunday we went on a little date and we were talking and she wants to get baptized. And so we're, we're baptizing again on the 31st, which is in a couple weeks. If you want to be baptized, mark it on your card. We'd love to talk to you about being baptized and baptize you on the 31st. With my daughter, though, we've been, uh, as her parents, kind of delaying that. She's nine years old. We don't want her to get baptized and then in a few years be like, I didn't really know what I was doing. Like, I didn't really, it was because you and my dad and you mom and all that stuff. And I, we don't want her to do that. And so we've been delaying it. Like, I, if we can hold her back, we're going to hold her back. And if she just, I have to get baptized. So we're sitting at lunch. And she says, well, I trusted Jesus. I love Jesus. And I want the world to know that I love Jesus. Why won't you let me get baptized, Dad? <laughs> and I started thinking about like the like an axe. When they, well, there's water. Why shouldn't I get baptized? I'm like, I should probably baptize her right now because I'm talking to her. And, and I, I told her that. I said, hey, we want you to love Jesus for your whole life. And we don't want you to do it just because like, hey, we're at this church. And, you know, Dad works there. Or this is the thing to do. And. I want you to know what it really is to know Jesus and to love Jesus. And do you really know who Jesus is? And 
She starts talking to me about that, and she says, what's this whole deal with him having a sword for a tongue? And I'm like, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> now it's not just like, he loves me. And she says, that sounds scary. And she said, is Jesus scary? I said, oh, he is scary. And I started to talk about Jesus and why he's scary, things he tells us to do that we would never naturally pick to do. And then I quoted uh, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis says, when there's a girl who's about to meet Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the, in the book, and, and she says, he's a lion, is he safe? And the response is, he's not safe, but he's good. And I told my daughter, he's scary, but he's good. Do you know the goodness of Jesus? Do you realize he... It, Whatever your lust is, and maybe it's pornography, maybe it's sex, or maybe it's a lust for money, or maybe it's a lust for position, or maybe it's a lust for power. He's better than that? Do you even know, like, not just facts, that Jesus is stronger than your cancer, that Jesus is stronger than any difficulty you can go through, that Jesus is stronger than, do you know his power? Do you know his mercy? Do you know his grace? Have you, the Bible says that we're to taste and see that the Lord is good. Not that the preacher says it and you go, yeah, I think that's true. He is good. He's not bad, so therefore he's good. No, you experience it yourself to taste and see something. It's more than just watching the Food Network. You don't taste food, but you might get hungry by watching the Food Network. I do. But you don't experience being filled by watching the Food Network. You have to go eat something. We're to taste and see that the Lord is good. You know his goodness in your own life, in your own experiences. How does that happen? Well, that's my favorite part of this passage. What we see of this woman is not only does she have a humble faith, not only does she have a hungry faith, she's got an active faith. Look at the last couple verses here. Verse 29. Then he told her, Jesus says to her. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, he praises her faith and says she has great faith, megas faith. There are only a couple people in all the New Testament that Jesus praises their faith. Neither one of them are Jewish. Neither one of them are Pharisees. Neither one of them are the people that think that they're the most pure. They're both Gentiles. Matthew chapter 8, and right here in this, this woman's situation, she's called a centurion, or she's called a um, Canaanite woman in Matthew. And the other one's a centurion soldier. Verse 29, then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She's been cleansed, she's been healed. And then it's the next words that get me. She went home. Because I think to myself, I try to put myself in the place of this woman in this passage. What would I do if I came to Jesus and I begged Jesus and he wouldn't even listen to me? And I asked and I asked and I asked and I asked. And then he finally answers me with this parable that tells me there's other people in line ahead of me. And I say, I just want a crumb. And then he says, she's healed. Do you know what I think I would say with my weak faith? Because the last time I saw my daughter, she was probably being destroyed by a demon. I don't, we don't know exactly what this woman went through and what the daughter was going through, but we see a child possessed later in Mark. It's a little boy, and the father comes. He's the one who says, uh, help my unbelief. And the, the boy's being thrown in the water and thrown in the fire, and he's convulsing. The last time that this mother saw her daughter, she was convulsing. And I think if I were this mother, I think I would say, I believe you, Jesus, but why don't you come with me to the house? Now I'm a pastor, so I can cover it. Like, I know enough Christian language, and so do a bunch of you. Because she's going to want to thank you, Jesus. You know why I'm really thinking it? Because in case I get there and she's not healed, you're standing right there. And I'm going to be, hey, can, now, can, now can you do it? Maybe I'd say, uh, she's going to want to meet you. Uh, she's going to see your, I can't believe I get to meet you. I don't remember something, come up with some reason, justification, some language that sounds good, but what you really mean is, I'm not sure if I believe you. But it says here, 
she went home. What great faith. But she had to take action in order to do it. She had to take the next step. She went home and she found her child lying on the bed. And the demon gone. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. She's just seen God. And the way it happened was, she took the next step of faith. She put her faith into action. And what does that look like for you? What's your next step of faith? For some people, it's the first step of faith, and it's trusting Christ as Savior, because there's no one that has a pure heart whose heart isn't seen with the righteousness of Christ over top of it, that hasn't been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Like Isaiah said, our sins were as scarlet, but he washes us as white as snow, that we all rebel, we all go our own way, but he has to cleanse us. It's what he did on the cross, but it's not just because he died on the cross. You have to come in a humble faith and ask him to be your Savior. Romans chapter 10 says that if we believe in our hearts, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he will save us, he will cleanse your heart. For some of you, that's your next step of faith, is to actively place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you can do that today. For some of you, placed your faith in Jesus, it's time to take the next step of faith. And some of you, you've been living in, with an arrogant faith. You humbled yourself at the beginning, but now it's like about you, and it's what you did until you found Jesus, that you read your Bible, and so you do these things, and that God should bless you because you pray the right way, and you're really righteous, and you've got to humble yourself as the next step of faith. For some of you, it's a hungering and longing for Jesus Christ. And the only way you do that is you taste, you trust. You take an active step of faith. And that can be lots of things for different people. And they're all going to challenge our trust in Jesus. But that's what the pure in heart do is they have faith. So are you the pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we are grateful that uh, you can cleanse our heart, that you can purify us from all unrighteousness, that, that if we confess our sins, that you promise that you will, because of your faithfulness, you will cleanse us. And God, I pray for those who need to come as a spirit of repentance right now, that we need to repent of their pride, they need to repent of their self-righteousness, they need to repent of our greed, they need to repent of our lust, they need to repent of our, uh, this, the wickedness that's in our hearts, God. You're so faithful and you're so gracious that we could have done the same, the same sin we confessed last week, did it again this week, and you're still so gracious. Thank you for forgiving us again. And we come before your throne again. Help us start new. Make us new. Transform us. I pray if there's any here that need to trust Jesus as their Savior, that this would be the moment of salvation for them, that this very moment they would confess their sin before you and thank you, call upon you, and believe on you because you died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead to give them life, that they would inherit eternal life in this very moment. If you need to pray for that, then I just challenge you to do so. And Before you leave today, just to mark it on that card that I mentioned to the guests, that you trusted Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to give you some information to help you grow in a relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray for my friends here, their brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's a battle. In one moment, we can seem like we're pure in heart. Another moment, we're hypocrites. And you're so gracious. That one moment, we can be walking in the Spirit, one moment in the flesh, and that you get us right back in step with the Spirit. And I pray you do that for us right now. And there are some here that you're calling to take a, a step of faith, and some that's walking out into the unknown. And I pray that you would give them the courage to do that. And there's some that are desperate for you through 